Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast. My name is Jane Winter from Dietitian Connection and I'm an accredited practicing dietitian. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where you're listening today. I'm recording from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So this is another one of our podcasts in our series where we sort of turn the spotlight into dietitians who are exploring different paths and probably still most new graduates see their first job is in an acute um, clinical hospital. Um, that's where they sort of imagine that they're meant to be working. But there's so much more to dietetics than that. So we we really want to just have a look at some of those alternative areas of practice. And today I'm having a chat to Brady Schultz, who's an advanced sports dietitian, dietitian, nutritionist, exercise physiologist, and managing director of Healthy Lifestyles Australia. So his business, Healthy Lifestyles Australia, began its journey in 2008 in a small rural Queensland town of Lowood. And from those sort of humble beginnings, the company now provides employment to more than 40 staff members who are bringing a passion to delivering allied health services to Australia across rural, remote and metropolitan areas. 14 years on from the start of the company, they've been able to provide consultations to over 80,000 people nationally and delivering more than 525,000 occasions of allied health services, which I assume you're just not keeping a tally on your back of your calendar or something, Brady, to keep <laughs> no. up with 500,000. <laughs> um, alongside his management responsibilities, Brady specialises in nutrition for sporting performance and body composition. He's got experience across a variety of sectors, AIS, a number of sporting teams, Royal Flying Doctors, Queensland Health and Consultancy in Rural Healthcare. So welcome to our podcast, Brady, and thank you for taking the time to chat to us. Thanks, Jane. So let's go back to the beginning. Tell us a little bit about yourself and um, for those listeners, I Brady's actually just on parental leave, so he's in the company of a, a new, a fresh baby. Um, but what led you to becoming a dietitian in the first place? Initially, I, I thought after studying my exercise physiology degree, there needs to be more to supporting clients rather than just prescribing and assessing physical activity levels. And, you know, I, I can see the benefit and the expertise to be able to be able to work specifically within exercise as a treatment modality. But I knew there was more to be able to create in greater change, greater change with body fat release, greater change with assisting people managing type 2 diabetes, people who were trying to potentially go into remission from type 2 diabetes after initial diagnoses people who were struggling to put nutrition messages together that were specific for them and their health conditions. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I need to know more about nutrition to be able to support people in this way. And 
I had a couple of really great um, lecturers who were also dietitians, and they really, you know, encouraged me to to do the additional study. And I'm I'm so glad that I did because the combination of skills in terms of lifestyle modification has just been invaluable to assisting people in changing their lifestyles, their behaviours, um, and in improving their chronic condition management um, predominantly. Well, that's a refreshing approach. I need to learn more because in the days now of social media, so many people out there don't need to learn more before they can go out and give advice to everyone <laughs> who's listening. So so that's that's a good start. Um, so you did your dietetics uh, in Queensland, yeah? Yep, so Griffith University of the Gold Coast. So I, I uh, still lived in Lowood for a very long, uh, long time, even my undergraduate degree, I, I was still on a family farm. And I used to travel into UQ every day to do my under, undergraduate degree. And as soon as I got accepted in the position down the Gold Coast, I thought, no, I need to, I need to uh, change my, mm. my residence. So moved down to the Gold Coast and it was such an amazing experience to be immersed with like-minded people studying dietetics which really brought me up to scratch, brought my cooking skills up to scratch yes. too because they were pretty rough. And, you know, I, I suppose I, I, a lot of male dietitians out there who have been very privileged in terms of their mother being cooking for them for for all their life um, have a really harsh wake-up call when all of a sudden they have to fend for themselves and unfortunately, two-minute noodles is just not going to cut it every day. Um, so I had some really great um colleagues down there supporting me to be able to help my skills improve and it's quite amazing how quick you can turn them around when you put some effort into it yeah well let me reassure you as a female dietitian who had come straight out of you know school to university to dietetics my cooking skills were <laughs> abysmal as well <laughs> i just hate to think um the oh, i hate to remember the sorts of stuff i ate when i was actually left up to my own devices um but so did you always have a sort of a passion to want to stay in a rural community? Like did you ever think, no, 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 I want to get to Brisbane or I want to get to a capital city or was it always rural calling you back? Yeah, growing up in a rural area, a rural area I, I feel you're quite connected to your, your hometown, you're quite connected to the people and you're quite connected to the notion and the idea that people in rural areas, unfortunately, are likely not receiving the same accessibility of healthcare as people in metropolitan or larger areas. And so I felt almost this necessary commitment to be able to throw myself at ensuring we're uh, identifying needs within different communities and going, that need needs to be met. Who's going to do it? Nobody was putting their hand up. Nobody wanted to travel one hour out into, you know, west from Brisbane to be able to see clients in a small rural town. They all expected the clients to come to them. And I, you know, I knew my parents and my aunties and my uncles and local people and the type of people aren't going to necessarily travel that distance to be able to receive healthcare services, let alone dietetic yes. services. So yeah. I thought something's got to change here. Yeah. yeah. And that's when the idea of Healthy Lifestyles Australia came to being, which was actually a project as part of one of my university courses in my undergraduate degree. Ah, and what was the project? So the project was Healthy Lifestyles Australia. It was a business case. Oh, and so business case was sort of the premise of the project. Yeah, and and so I came up 
that I wanted to create a private practice. I already knew in my undergraduate degree that that's what I wanted to do. And I came up with a business case. And in fact, I've kept refreshing that business plan oh, really? ever, ever since. And I've still got my first one with my old logo that I drew on paint <laughs> with a little Australia logo and rainbow colours and a little happy man and the, the healthy lifestyles Australia underneath. So... <laughs> And so Healthy Lifestyles Australia came into came into being sort of 15 years or so ago now. What was your kind of philosophy? Was it all about that improving access for people in, in rural communities? Was that sort of your, your main um, principle for developing the practice? No, I think it was a little bit more that was an element and that was a partial principle, but it wasn't a Definitely the the only principle. I think meeting needs in communities was the underlying principle that was mainly attributable to Healthy Lifestyles Australia being the way it is now and how I initially set it up. Because even though we started in rural areas, started in Gatton and Allara and Warwick and Kalani and Lowood and Fernvale and Esk and Tagulawa and Laidley, and even though all those areas required services and there was a, a gap needed, I started to find that gaps were still being identified within larger regional centres or even more metropolitan centres like Ipswich or Harvey Bay. And so when when people came to me and they knew what I was doing, they, they said, Brady, we, we've got a need here. Can you meet it? And I was just the yes man. I'm like, yep. <laughs> whether I could or not, I just made it happen. And what was phenomenal from saying yes the action steps I took to be able to ensure that people could be serviced, it just naturally happened. Um, now, naively, I probably look back at how I was back then trying to, to build a, a business where now I probably have a little bit more of a strategic approach around it, ensuring capability and capacity is there to ensure you can meet needs initially. But I think I was so focused on ensuring Healthy Lifestyles Australia would be successful and I was so focused on meeting the needs of the communities that I just worked extra hours to make it happen. And sometimes that meant for about two years I worked seven days a week, um, which which was hard. But how did the, you literally, How did you literally set it up to say you, you've got an idea in your head, Healthy Lifestyle Australia, you've got a cool little logo that you've done on paint on your computer. Yeah. Um, so what was your first steps? Was it doing mail outs to people? Was it putting ads in papers? Or, you know, how did you actually get the name out there to the people that you wanted to get to? So the needs back then are different to the needs now. Yes. The needs back then were local communities not having dietetic services. So... Where are you going to get the most referrals? Medical centres. Yes. So had the meeting with the doctor and I tell you what, I was fresh and I was young and I, looking back on it now, probably wouldn't give myself a go. But <laughs> there are a lot of doctors who were so hungry for receiving somebody who could provide mm. some nutrition care. They were just all the more welcoming to having me be part of their medical centre. And so once one medical centre heard that I was consulting the town 15 minutes away or 30 minutes away was like, hey, Brady, could you come here? And then when I had capacity within my week, then I'd contact the next surgery in the next town. And then all of a sudden I was too busy. And so within the first three months, I had to employ another um, dual grad dietitian exercise physiologist. And then all of a sudden there's two of us and I thought life was great. And another six months, another. 
dual graduated dietitian exercise physiologist. And all of a sudden I thought, holy dooly, I need to put on somebody to help me run this business. I need a reception staff member. So it just so happened. Um, our now practice manager was ever so happy to come on board. And um, she's been with us from organization inception in, in, until now. And uh, after that, those didn't all go smoothly. Um, what happened was the university stopped doing dual graduate dietitians and exercise physiologists, and all of a sudden I had to change my model. All yes. of a sudden we had two different professions working on the one day in one place, but you take away and you go into single professions, dietetics or exercise physiology, and all of a sudden I needed to get smarter about how I was doing business because all of a sudden rather than seeing a full days of clients, we were seeing two-thirds of a day or half a day's worth of clients. Yeah, I was going to ask were you committed in those early stages to getting the dual qualified? Was that important to who you were employing at that point? That was important for the success of the company initially, yeah. yes. Yeah. And what happened was the university stopped doing the dual graduate degrees and I had to vary how we were recruiting. And as a result, um, it worked beautifully because we're innovative in our ways to diversify our income streams through different funding models to ensure that we could still see a full day's worth of clients. And um, it's been that way ever since. And I no longer specifically search for dual graduates. I always search for people specific to their profession, not because of any other reason. Oh, I, I, I do like how people can throw themselves and immerse themselves fully into their area of, of choice, dietetics, diabetes education, exercise physiology, um, but I never, I never um, encourage people not to do additional skills. So, for example, I'm very encouraging in a lot of rural communities for dietitians to also get their credential diabetes education. Yeah. Why? Because there's not many CDEs within the private rural um, workforce. And so there are some really positive areas that that additional skilling will be able to bring to different communities and client-centered care. So do you employ in your practice exercise physiologists, employ dietitians, employ diabetes educators? Do you employ a whole range of different Correct. professional expertise? Yep, okay. So does that mean that if someone is coming from a, a patient or client point of view, whereas they might have got one consultation with a dual qualified person, does that, how have you managed because they're, then they're up to pay for an exercise physiologist session and a dietitian session rather than getting one session with a dual qualified person. Is that it's, a problem? It's, it's an interesting question. Um, and I don't necessarily believe it's an issue because typically, depending on the, the, the type of funding, you usually can get really good quality care delivered regardless of whether you have a dual qualification or whether you have your single qualification, I don't think it really matters. Mm. I think what is really important is the level and the quality of care provided within that consultation time because yeah. there's been a number of times where I've tried to squeeze a bit of both mm. into a consultation. It's been too much and the client hasn't necessarily responded or yes. reacted to that level of information in a way that would be therapeutically useful in how they're going to try and change their lifestyle. And that's but, a classic trap, isn't it, for a new grad? Always trying to squeeze too much into one consultation, always. Yes. Yeah. 
So do you have a particular, it's sort of come through a bit already, but a particular philosophy of practice at Healthy Lifestyles Australia that sort of underpins the way you see clients, the way you treat clients, your consultations? I, I, th- I know everybody hears this every day, but client, client-centred care is the most, the most mm. important thing because if we don't have clients, what are we doing? Yeah, business. Who 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 are we going to help? It's the most common, commonly spoken um, philosophy. Whether it's the most commonly executed philosophy um, might be a different ex- thing. I'll give you an example. So I've talked to you a lot about you know how I started Healthy Lifestyles Australia, but that's not how I started as a dietitian. How I started as a dietitian, where I really cut my teeth, was working in rural and remote areas of Queensland. That's when I did work with the Royal Flying Doctors. That's when I did work out at Kanamala, Thargaminda, Mount Isa, Normanton, Cloncurry. That's when I used to drive two, mm. three hours to get to a place and then drive two to three hours to get back. Tara, Troom, Wondowan, Chinchilla, Miles, all these places. That's where I initially cut my teeth. And what I thought back then was how blessed am I that I have an opportunity to be able to help all these people straight out of university, to be thrown straight into the deep end. And what I found was I didn't know as much as I thought I knew. And so I thought I was doing a good job. But soon as we asked for feedback and I realised, well, you know, you're okay, mate, but you could be doing better. I had to really figure out how could I improve client care? How could I get that person to respond to the consultation to a greater extent. There was research put out by Griffith University, Sladden was the author, and it looked at three or four different things that people want out of a dietetic consultation. One of the things is, is the, 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 the patient wants to like you. <laughs> if they don't like you, they're probably not going to come back. The second thing is they want to be a part of their care. When I first came out of uni, I wanted to tell them what to do as opposed to using techniques like motivational interviewing to get them to come up with their own ideas to be able to change their own lifestyle behaviours. Those principles from research like that show that we need to almost take a step back from what we think we need to be doing with clients and know what the client really wants from us. Yeah, clinical care and professionalism is another part of that. But I had to learn early on that to really provide exemplary client care, I need to be good across all these different areas. And I'll tell you what, there's a lot of extra study and a lot of a lot of hurtful moments too where clients that you called on the phone didn't want to come back and told you exactly why they didn't want to come back. And in an age where mental health is so important, you need to ensure you're the type of person that can deal with that. Mm. And if you're not the type of person that you can deal with that, you need to be a part of an organisation or a culture that supports you to be able to process that in a way that you get out the other side better and stronger and more resilient and more poised as a dietitian and more focused as a dietitian to be able to give even more to your clients in terms of when I say give more to your clients, I mean give more to what they need specific to their needs based on your level of, you know, where you are. But those factors are so important to ensuring that we are, you know, following client-centered care 
And it can be hurtful to find out if clients aren't liking what you're doing, but it's also imperative to be able to grow from that too. Yeah, and that's a really interesting point. And I think it's something that is glossed over or not really spoken about is actually how you get that feedback from your clients because you're right, that is something that is going to tell you way more about your consultation than anything else. Or if they rebook, that's probably telling you something about your consultation. But was it literally you calling them and asking how they're going or did you have some formalised way of getting feedback from nope. them or in, no, you just asked? In the early days, Jane, it was the Wild West. Yeah. I didn't know what to do. It was just like, well, why is this person not coming back in? Let's just call them up. You know, n- now I've got systems in the company that are beautiful. You know, the the receptionist will ask, you know, reasons why they're not coming back. And we've got a bit of a, a way that we follow that. Then we summarise that information, see if we can pull out any common themes and we can go approach the dietitian or the clinician who may be having some of the common themes come out. And then that can be, you know, reviewed with that person to find out why that may, may be occurring and, and leave that allied health professional come to terms with, okay, this is what's happened. But then more importantly, how do we minimize this from happening again? So that's a really beautiful flowing process. But back then it was just, how are you going? Boom, get it straight to your face. Yeah. Now, cope, cope with that. Now, when you're the solo person doing it and you're doing all your bookings and you're trying to rebook and you're paying, you know, you, you, you got your room hire fees and all that type of stuff, it can get really hard and heavy on you straight away. But if you're resilient and it's what you want to do and work through it, then there is opportunity there. So is. those those processes that you've talked about that you've developed over time with the reception staff asking questions, has that been, have you gone to other places? Like how have you developed those? Has it just been trial and error? Or you just give it a go, see what feels good? Or have you actually taken models and principles from other people that you've connected with? Or where have you sort of gained those skills? A combination of everything, combination of trial and error. <clears throat> a combination of utilization of appropriately trained professionals within your organization. We have a, a organizational psychologist who also doubles as our human resource uh, manager. And the learnings that I've been able to gain from her have been that very val- valuable yeah. in setting up our systems, our procedures and our processes to be even more perfect. But apart from that, you know, also listening at what other organisations are doing and finding out what other allied health companies are doing or when you go to receive services somewhere, yes. what's their process? Okay. What are they doing? What do you like? And you culminate all of that into what you feel is best for your organisation and what you feel best you feel is best for your, for your clients. Um, and it takes time and it takes a lot of effort and sometimes it takes money. Mm. Um, to be able to come to a really beautiful endpoint where you feel you've got something special that can keep your clients really happy, keep your clinicians really happy and keep you moving forward as an organisation into providing better care. And are you still involved in one-to-one sessions patient-facing or is are your time absorbed now with managing and running the company? I can't get away from one-on-one consultation. And when I say I can't because get away from to? it, I don't want to. Yes, there's a lot of a lot of business coaches that that say managing directors or directors of companies should not be doing clinical services. They need to be there, you know, working on the business all the time and working in the back end processes. Good on them, but I feel really strongly about staying connected to your mm. purpose and what you're doing. 
And by saying connected, it means going through the trenches on a day-to-day basis with your staff to go, oh, these are some of the things we're facing. How do we overcome this together? And you can say that because you know, because you're in there doing it with them. However, as soon as you remove yourself from all of that, all of a sudden you become a little bit of this enigma that's out on the side that does he really know what's really going on? Well, I do because I do it a few days a week. I have had to reduce my clinical consultation down to be able to allow sufficient management within the company. And, you know, any director knows there needs to be a balance with that. And, you know, I can put my hand up and say I've done a really horrible job of that and I could have established balance a lot earlier within my career. However, same again as everything, a little bit of um, live and learn is needed. And here we are in a, in a good spot and things are going along really well. But if I knew what I know now, I would have been here about three, four years ago. Yeah. And, and Brady, I guess that to your point that I'm sure it makes it easier for your staff to actually come to you if there are particular issues because they do know that you're still practising, whereas if the head of the business isn't seeing clients, then I imagine that there's much less likelihood that they would come to you and go, I just, I'm having a real issue with this particular client facing sort of situation. Um, mm-hmm. And they're much less likely to engage in that sort of conversation with you if you're not actually seeing clients. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And I can imagine that your business, your, your enjoyment of the business is, as you say, providing a service. And if you're personally not doing that, then I guess it does take away a little bit of that pleasure. Mm. I think another thing to add and grow on from that discussion point is, and you, your listenership, if there is new graduate dietitians or new grad, uh, new dietitians in the industry, that that message of, you know, don't provide too much but don't provide not enough, you know, three points to take away, yes, yeah, sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's not good. Sometimes a client wants a full menu plan mm-hmm. Monday to Sunday, breakfast, morning tea, lunch, afternoon tea, dinner. This is all coming back to establishing expectation with what needs are voiced by the client and drilling back to that client-centered care. What's the client really needing? And establishing that early in your career to be able to, I suppose, bypass the first two or three years of difficulty because we have a lot of preconceived ideas to what we think clients need to hear initially and I tell you what, from still being in the trenches, doing the work, seeing clients face-to-face, I have to slap myself around and saying, hold on, are you truly providing clients that care? Did that person need that full menu plan that you've sat down and developed for that hour during that consultation for them? Or did they just need a couple of things, a tap on the shoulder, good work, mate, see you next time? <laughs> the skills to be able to know which one of those to provide takes time to develop. But if you have good mentors and you have your finger on the pulse, you'll definitely be able to start working towards developing mastery with that strategy and skill um, over time. And surprise, surprise, clients all often don't exactly want what we want. Like, I mean, even as a client, yes. I might like the list of things. doesn't mean that everyone does. So, you know, just That's taking right. a moment to recognise that. So just I'm interested in the, in the concept of the, the regional sort of 
practice. Um, do you think, and I know you haven't actually run the practice in a metropolitan setting, but are there particular challenges of running a practice in a rural area um, that you've had to overcome or manage that you think are different probably to a metropolitan setting? Yeah, so if, like if we look at our if we look at our centres in Brisbane, um, oh, you do our, have some practices in Brisbane, yeah, 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 okay, yeah. So if we look at our centres in Brisbane versus our practices in Ipswich versus our practices in Gatton versus our mm. practices in Toowoomba versus our practices in Oakey versus our practices in Warwick, but then our versus our practices in Stanthorpe versus our practices in maybe another small smaller regional town, each community has a different need. Each community has a different style and I don't necessarily always want to get caught up in, in the idea that all rural areas are the same mm. because they're not. They're, they're not. You know, out west the farmers are different. They've got bigger properties. They've got cattle. They do wheat. They do cotton. Where in the Lockyer Valley the farmers are small crop farmers. They're typically around their house a lot of the day and their farms, their backyard. So they've got a couple hundred acres where the guys out west have like 2,000 acres upwards. So the lifestyle is different. Their locality to a supermarket and shopping centre is different. Yeah. Their locality to their house and what they take with them each day is different. The times that they work are different if we're looking at farmers per se. And all these things really challenge you as a dietitian to be more innovative in how you deliver care. I'll give you an example. When I was when I flew up to Normanton um, in North North Queensland, I used to do my consultation in Mount Isa and we'd hop on the little plane and we charter out into Normanton and beautiful community, spent a couple of days there providing dietetic consultation. But one day I said, okay, Bobby Joe, whoever the client was, I need you to have more salad and vegetable. I just need it to happen. You didn't do it last time. I need it to happen this time. Bobby Joe said, have you been to our local supermarket? <laughs> I said, no, but I'm about to go. <laughs> A lettuce was $10. Oh. Now, I don't know about you, but no, not spending that. spend $10 on a lettuce. <laughs> I would balk at that. Not any offence to a lettuce farmer because my old man was a lettuce farmer. <laughs> but that's a lot of money to spend on one lettuce. And then if you've got a family to feed, it can become really challenging financially to be able to meet everyday needs for the nutrition of your family. So I needed to get more innovative. I needed to think, how can I approach this to it on a different level to ensure people could still get the nutrition but not bleed money from their from their pockets significantly that doesn't allow them to do the other things in life that they want to do. So then we started to have a look at, you know, frozen veggies and, you know, are you driving back from one of the biggest centres where you can do a bigger shop, put it all in freezer bags, bring it home, stock up, and then just use the local supermarket for local shops when you need it. Um, typically the one thing I didn't have to worry about was good quality protein because everybody could get a good quality cut of lean beef <laughs> locally or pig or goat or sheep or something that, you know, was going to mean the quality of meat was probably actually better than we can buy anywhere else. Yeah. But the other absolute essentials, like the veggies and salads, which we want people to eat, like fruit, because we know from Australian Guide to Healthy Eating, it's going to have such a brilliant, brilliant benefit towards our whole, whole self. 
just are difficult to, to meet. But through being innovative and reflecting about, okay, how do I how do I actually provide good care here? But it um, also brings up the topic of um, the concept of local knowledge and knowing, mm-hmm. as he said, have you ever been to our supermarket? And so having an understanding, but also having an understanding, as you said, of the types of farms that are there or the biggest employer that's there. It might be that there's a particular industry that's centred there. Are your practitioners, your clinicians that you employ tend to be locals or are they coming in from a whole variety of places? Like how do you, is it up to them to or is it up to you as a rural practitioner to go out and get that local knowledge and have that understanding before you start seeing clients? Yeah. When when we look at residents and locality, I'm a very firm believer is the closer you live to where you're working, the more longevity there is yeah. in that position. In the early days of Healthy Lifestyle Australia, we had great turnover. Why? Because we were sharing so many areas that were in very geographically diverse locations that we would just have to drive three hours one location yeah. or two hours to get to another location. It's too hard. So the last 15 years, we've strategically encouraged people to position themselves in a locality or location that was central to a need. And that need could be from five or six different communities, but it meant rather than travelling two hours, three hours, four hours during the week to all these different places, they only had to travel half an hour to this place. They are in town for the other place, an hour for one place once a fortnight, and then 15 minutes to the other town on the other place, uh, on the other side of their, their town, another day of the week. So really it meant we could localise the work closer, which gave greater longevity in the positions. And I'm really, really proud to say that, you know, a lot of our staff now have been with us for up to seven, eight years um, after we've taken the shift in that approach and made that a reality. Um, but one of the things that I, I feel every dietitian needs to do, and I still do it, is spend time in the supermarket. Mm-hmm. Just wherever you are, just spend time in the supermarket. Last shop I did, it took me three hours. <laughs> I had two kids in the trolley with me. It was the dumbest thing I could have done. I can't help it. I just don't know of any other way to get through the supermarket quicker than that. It's just my brain and how it works. And I need to look at that and go, hold on, why that over that? Oh, that butter's not really butter. It's got margarine mixed in with it. My client who thought they were eating butter is actually eating margarine mixed with butter. I'm going to tell them that the other day. And, you know, I'm going to tell them, like, you don't get this stuff from scrolling through Instagram. No, and it's, a, it's an interesting point about because I remember a few years ago, you know, I had young children decided to do online shopping. It was quite new at that time, you know, really cool. I'll do online shopping. And it drove me crazy because I couldn't have a look at the breadth. You would tend to go back to what you bought last time and <laughs> did not get any concept of new products or new things on the shelf at all. And Gave up on online shopping pretty quickly. Uh, had I known what was coming in years to come, probably should have stuck with it. But but at that point, you know, and it was just that not being able to see things on the shelf and not being able to see the new things and therefore you don't pick them up and have a look at the label and, and check them out. But the point about the staff and if they're close to work, that is right, but that's still a challenge, isn't it? Because, you know, many years ago I worked at Deakin Uni and we used to have... Um, doctors and you know even hospital staff ringing from rural areas saying how do we attract dietitians here how do we get 
them here mm-hmm. because they don't want to come rurally and live. And, you know, we talked about all sorts of strategies, what they had to do and how they could attract them. Had If you're looking, because not everyone, you know, there are not a lot of dietitians going to dietetics from students who live in those areas or grew up in those areas. So people must be moving to those areas. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think what's really important initially for, for dietitians and dietitian graduates is you need to develop experience somewhere. Wherever that is, go get it. Just go get it. And then you have the opportunity to be able to fill these needs in your community, whether you're in Western Australia, South Australia, Northern Territory, it doesn't matter. The needs are going to be there in a lot of different communities, and it could actually be the community that you live in. It could be the community that's 30 minutes away. It could be a community an hour away, but they actually may only need to be serviced once a month. It may be a community on the other side of the river, and they're about 20 minutes away. But you may find between all these communities, you've just created yourself a full-time job. Yeah. Yeah. And I I, I really strongly believe, yeah, great, it's my vision to be able to do this in my local areas and we're expanding and the business is growing and it's really great, but if you have that passion yourself, you know, I'm probably not going to get over to Western Australia in the next week. So that means there's a lot of people in a lot of communities that probably need that support. Northern Territory, South Australia, all the same thing. And if you think innovatively about what needs are present, go meet them. But to be fair too, Jane, a lot of a lot of dietitians would like work in their current area of residence. And their current area of residence is, and there's nothing wrong with this, and don't think I'm bad-mouthing anybody about this, a lot of dietitians live in metropolitan areas. Yes. And it's a reality that everybody wants a job five minutes down the road and they don't want to drive, all that type of stuff. Great. Awesome. But if you can't find that job, what are you going to do? If you're up for an adventure, and the word is adventure because it is exactly that, throw yourself at a rural area. Throw yourself at somewhere far off that you go, yeah, I could actually give this a good red hot go. You may not stay there forever, but it's not about that. You need to cut your teeth somewhere. You need to get experience. And these are communities that not only you'll get experience, but also help ground you in terms of what's really important about nutrition for health and moving people forward to provide client-centered care. And that could be the thing that you need to be innovative then to look at other needs in your community in the future. You may move back to a metropolitan area and go, wow, I was really passionate about feeding therapy Yeah. back where I was working. Maybe I do that as my specialty because no other dietitian local to my area is doing that. Aha. Uh-huh. Now, rather than competing with everybody and just trying to get everybody who wants to lose some weight, you're actually looking at a niche area where there's an identifiable need. And guess what? People are going to refer. If you've got experience in the area and nobody else is doing it and you market yourself appropriately, guess what? You're going to get busy. It's going to take time. It's going to take a lot of work and a lot of effort. There's going to be some blood, sweat and tears. But guess what? You'll eventually get busy. And and as you say, even if someone does decide to move back to a metropolitan area, they're bringing all those skills with them. You're not leaving those behind in the rural area that you develop them in. So you come back with so much more experience, so much more to offer your clients or employer um, Mm. back in the metropolitan place. And I guess the other thing is that you don't have to be sort of intimidated by 
looking at a, like what you do, Brady, and go, oh, my God, I could never do that because you can actually go and work in a business like that, which gives you the support, you have the opportunity. So it's not like it's or you've just got to go out and start this practice from scratch and try and find your referral sources. There are businesses like yours who uh. are working in these areas who give you the opportunity to be employed in a supportive environment so you're not left on your own. I sometimes feel like, Jane, about back in the day, if I knew what I know now and how much work and how many endless nights and days that I had to work and hours a week, sometimes I look at maybe sometimes it is better to work in a business (laughs) as opposed to be the director of the company and have staff management and have, you know, bills to pay and wondering if that funding is going to come through and all these other stresses. So, and that's absolutely fine too. If you're somebody who's like, yeah, great, that's me. I want lifestyle. I want to be able to be plugged into a group who's going to be supportive. There's a lot of groups out there that you're going to find your home in. Yeah, yeah. So if if I was to decide to start a private practice tomorrow, which – I won't be in my point of my career. Um, it's not something that I'm aspiring to right now. But if there's, there is, you know, new graduate dietitians who would like to start a private practice or build their practice from just perhaps one GP clinic that they're sitting in, what would your main advice to them be? Um, first, you need to ensure you've got the experience. Um, it can be very devastating as a new business owner to develop experience within your own clientele. Um, Why? Because if you're at a medical centre and you're providing services there and you haven't had any existing experience and everybody thinks, yeah, they're okay but they're not that good, but then everybody in the community knows, yeah, you're okay but not that Mm -hmm. good, that doesn't instill a lot of confidence in clients to go, yeah, I'll pay you to come and tell me about nutrition. You need to be able to have the skills and the knowledge from working in an opportunity in an established group or organisation where you can learn a lot of those things before going out. And one of the things you may decide, maybe it's not for you. Maybe you see the amount of work and effort that needs to be able to go in to make that happen. But then if you're passionate about it, great. There's the opportunity. There's the opportunity that you can go and you go and work at and do after you've You've learned what it really means and what you need to do to be able to make a successful organisation and impact a lot of people's lives because at the end of the day, that's what it's coming down to. Can you impact somebody's life? Do people like you? Do you provide an excellent service? So do you think for, you know, we hear this a lot from new grads that, you know, jobs are hard to come by and they might be patching together a number of sort of casual um, private practice, you know, working for another practice. But do you think there's um, merit in doing that just to get that experience, like working for a group practice, even if it is a day here, a day in a different practice, you know, patching together? Because I think a lot of new grads feel nervous that they should be getting a full-time permanent job somewhere and that's not really what they should do. But do you, would your advice be take it and just grab the experience that you can get? I, I feel it's a really great idea and yeah. I, I think it's a great idea because likely one of those businesses that employing is employing you is going to grow and yes. it's going to probably grow quicker than you think and then what's likely to happen, let's say you've got three casual jobs, 
two at one, one at another, one at the other, you've got it all set, you know it's going to happen. You're getting the best of all worlds, finding out, okay, what's the best from everything here? What do I want in an employer? If I want to be an owner of business, what do I think is best to be able to apply to my own business? Not only that, then you have an opportunity of three different people growing. And then if one of them grows quicker than the other, then you've got an opportunity to be able to transition up within that organisation in terms of maybe to a full-time position. And another really great thing is maternity leave positions too. Some maternity leave positions might be three or six months. Don't be scared by that always. I've just... I've just put two different dietitians into maternity leave positions and at the end of the period, the maternity dietitian who was on maternity leave, they actually only wanted to come back a day a week. Guess what? That dietitian is just now a full-time employee. How great's that for them? They just got a job out of it at the end of the day. We never know what it's going to look like when you go into something, but if you match with the culture of the organisation and you match with the passion and the mission of the organisation, then why not give it a go? Yeah, and I agree. I, th- I always feel like I, I'm always advising any new graduates I come into contact with or, or recent graduates that don't be frightened by a contract because, as you say, if you're a good fit, I don't know what the stats are, but anecdotally the vast majority get to go on to something else or get offered another position. Like within that, the contract gets extended, it becomes permanent. It feels like much more continue on in that employment than have their contract terminated and leave if they're a good fit. So I always feel like it's definitely worth it. If you want that experience, go for the contract position. Mm-hmm. That's fair. But, um, look, Brady, thanks very much. I've taken up quite a bit of your time. Um, and we really appreciate the experience and the insights that you've given us into What's become, obviously, I don't know if this is how you imagined healthy lifestyles from that initial business plan, (laughs) if you had your scope of how many people you thought would be employed in the practice or whether it's just gone way beyond what you ever imagined um, or not. But it's obviously doing really well and definitely filling a hole. And it sounds like you could win any trivia night about geography of Queensland, (laughs) reeling (laughs) off all those towns. (laughs) Well, thanks so much, Jane, for having me. I really appreciate it. And I hope everybody got something out of it today. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Brady. Thanks, Jane. To get all of the links and resources we discussed in this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learnt, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you, and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.